I invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word uh, in Matthew chapter 16. And we'll be uh, first in verses 16 through 19, and then we'll flip the page over to Matthew chapter 18 to look at verses 15 through 20 of that chapter. Uh, those of you who are members of our church or uh, on kind of the, the, our emailing list uh, received an email from me a couple of days ago sort of previewing this sermon series and where we would be over the next several weeks. Uh, if you missed that, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring you up to speed just briefly. Last fall in October at our uh, regular members meeting, I shared with the church during my pastor's report some of the things that I had learned and observed about our church over the past several months, uh, especially during the whole you know, COVID pandemic thing. There are several good things that I noticed about our church, particularly the love and care that our members have for one another. Uh, our, our Sunday school classes, even as they were meeting online and over the phone and in different ways, continue to really care for one another very well, stay up to date on needs that people had and, and things that were going on in one another's lives. That was really, really, really good. Church continued to, to give financially, very sacrificially and, and, uh, and abundantly over the course of the last year, which was really very encouraging uh, to me as a pastor because it means that your hearts are really in this gospel work and we're excited for what God will do through us uh, as his people. There were some other things, though, that we noticed during the pandemic that I observed during the, uh, uh, much of the, the COVID lockdown and shutdowns that we experienced in 2020 and kind of are still living in light of today that are not bad things, but just challenges that we'll need to work through and overcome in the future. Some of those challenges are related to how we structure uh, uh, small groups in our church. Right now, it's hard to meet all in, all in one building and in rooms that don't supply adequate space for social distancing and things. And so we're going to have to think about maybe what we do with that in the future. Also noticed a, a need for additional uh, leaders to come alongside Pastor Danny and myself to, to give pastoral care to a church that is dispersed and going through really unprecedented uh, difficult uh, uh, times and, and uh, just social circumstances. Um, others to serve the church uh, even as, as deacons and teachers and, and to provide more and better opportunities for church members to serve in different ways in the church. So there are, I'll just say this, likely some, some changes coming on the horizon, a way out. But before we work through those changes, those adaptations to a changing culture and a changing uh, sort of uh, uh, cultural patterns and rhythms of behavior, I wanted to take some time to open God's Word together and see how God intends for us to come together and, and do these things, uh, carry out these ministries together as a church. So I've, uh, I've titled this sermon series, Assembly Required. And it is a title that I will say I am, I am somewhat pridefully uh, uh, glad about. I don't know. Um, the, the title, the series title, Assembly Required, has, has a couple of different meanings. The first is this, that when Jesus says he'll build his church, and the, the, the word that is used for church all throughout the New Testament is this word ecclesia. You've heard it before. We've used it before. Hopefully it's not a strange term to you. But that word ecclesia, most literally translated, means assembly, means coming together. And so when Jesus speaks about his church, he speaks about them as an assembly. It is required for the church to assemble if we're to be the church of Jesus Christ. So assembly is required in that way. That way. But also we know that as God brings the church of Jesus Christ together, he also gives it particular structures, ways of relating to one another, the way that members relate to each other, the way that pastors relate to, to congregation members, the way that congregation members relate to their pastors and deacons to the congregation and to the pastor elders as well and, and all the way around. There is some assembling that takes place as God brings his 
people together in the name of Jesus. And so we want to take the next uh, four weeks, beginning today, to look at how God assembles his church, how God sets a, uh, patterns for relationship within the context of the church. And today we begin with what I think is the most important aspect of the church, which is the congregation and the authority that the congregation has. If I were to ask you, what is a church, you would probably all give me lots of different definitions that all sound a lot alike. In fact, I have a, a small stack of books uh, on my desk in my office of people that were writing about the church and the assembling, the, the, the constitution of the church, if you will. And they all define it in different ways that are more or less the same. Maybe the best, most succinct definition of what makes a church a church is this from one author who says, it is a group of Christians who jointly identify as followers of Jesus through regularly gathering in his name, preaching the gospel, and celebrating the ordinances. A group of Christians who jointly identify as followers of Jesus through regularly gathering in his name, preaching the gospel, celebrating the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. All these definitions, which I believe are very good and helpful, have at their core the idea of individual followers of Jesus gathering together to carry out certain tasks, assembling together to do what Jesus has brought them to do. And so assembling in the name of Jesus and operating in the character and with the message of Jesus is really what sets the church apart from many other sorts of assemblies in the world, gatherings of people. You know, book clubs assemble so that they can uh, share common interest in literature and for the purpose of you know, discussing different books. PTA boards, parent-teacher associations, assemble according to the interest in a group of children's education or for the purpose of advancing educational goals of a particular school or a particular group of kids. The local church, though, as an assembly, is fundamentally different from either a book club or a PTA. It assembles, which is the meaning of that word church, assembly, it assembles to, uh, according to faith in the person and work of Jesus. And the church assembles and operates in ways that pursue the purposes of Jesus who brings the church together. The church does not come together to carry out its own interests, its own, its own preferences, but only those of Jesus who makes the church, who creates the church. Now, defining the church this way and understanding it like this is all well and good. And I think, that we would, I think that we would have a broad consensus among those of us in this room that that is what the church is and that's what the church does. But what if I asked you the question this morning, who is the most important person in the church? Many of you would say immediately, or if I were to ask the question, who has greatest authority in the church? Many of you would rightly respond, Jesus does. And you would, you would be right. Jesus is always the first right answer in church, right? But next to Jesus, and we affirm that, that Jesus stands as sovereign king and head of the church. But below Jesus, right beneath him, in the organization of the body, the people who assemble, who has the most authority? Dear friends, I'll tell you this morning, it is not the pastors. It is not the deacons. It's not a priest or bishops or a pope. The person with the most authority uh, is not any one person in the church but it is the assembly of the church's members, the whole gathering of those who have covenanted together in the name of Jesus. The congregation has great authority given to it by Jesus Christ. And this is the main idea that we will be exploring from Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 today, that members of the church of Jesus Christ have authority 
to do two things. Authority to confirm the what of the gospel and authority to affirm the who of the gospel. Authority to confirm what and authority to affirm who. Now, as we explore these aspects of the authority that Christ gives to the congregation, to the church, my hope is that we as members of this local church would all learn to exercise the authority that Jesus has given us and to exercise it responsibly as a people who represent him to the world. So having begun that way, let us stand together as you're comfortably able as we read Matthew 16, verses 16 through 19. Stand with me. As we come to this passage uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has arrived at Caesarea Philippi. He's got his disciples around him. He asks the disciples a critical question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And some of them respond, oh, John the Baptist. Others pe- other people say Elijah. Others think you're, he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus gives the church authority to confirm the what of the gospel and affirm the who of the gospel. Let's look first uh, at that first aspect of authority. The congregation has authority to confirm the what, the content, the message of the gospel. This is clear to us from Matthew chapter 16. Verses 16 through 19, the passage we just read. When we considered this passage several weeks ago in our series on Baptist distinctives last year, we noted there in that place that Jesus promises to build his church on the, con- on, on the confessors who confess the right confession. That's harder to say out loud than you would think. That's what's going on in this passage. Jesus asks the all-important question of the disciples and really the all-important question that he effectively poses to every man, woman, and child in the world, who do you say that I am? What is your confession about me? Now, Peter, whose name in Greek is Petros, which is the same word for rock, Peter is the first to confess publicly that Jesus is the Christ. When asked that all-important question, who do you say that I am, Peter is the first one to speak up to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is, Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the Savior who was promised and appointed by God to bring salvation to His people and to the world. This passage ought to catch our interest. Because in it, Jesus says that on the rock that is Peter... Peter's name is Petros. Petros means rock. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. On the rock that is Peter, Jesus will build his church. He will build his church uh, upon the first confessor of the right confession. That is to say, Peter will be the, the first brick laid alongside the cornerstone that is Jesus in the household of faith. This is the first of only two times in all of the Gospels that Jesus uses the word church, ecclesia, assembly. So take a pencil, take a pen. If you're not opposed to scribbling in your Bibles, and I hope you're not, it's helpful. Circle that word church there in verse 18. 
I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. I will build my assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will build the assembly of those who believe in him on the pattern of Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of all who entrust their lives to him. Jesus will not build his church on Peter as an individual. He will build his church on Peter as the first among many who will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Friends, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, hear and understand this. There is a way to enter the kingdom of heaven. The way to enter the kingdom of heaven is through faith in Jesus. Confession that he is Lord and Christ Understanding in your heart and adherence to the reality that he lived a life without sin. He lived that sinless life in your place and died in your place on a cross for your sins that you have committed and was raised from the dead so that if you entrust your life to him as Lord and Christ, as Redeemer of the world, that you will be placed into a right relationship with God your Creator that you'll be given the promise of the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to lead you in abundant spiritual life now and to seal you with the promise of resurrection to eternal life even after you die. Friend, there is hope for salvation. There is hope for restoration to God. There is hope for relationship with Christ through faith in Him. Not through any one institution, not through any one individual, but through faith in Christ, the man who was God in flesh, who gave his life for us and raised it from the dead. The church that Jesus builds is a church of people who know him as Lord and Savior. Friend, have you come to know him that way? Have you come to trust him that way? Have you come to see that he is the only promised way of salvation from God? I pray that you have. And if you have come to see him that way, believed in him that way, confessed publicly Jesus is Lord and Christ, you are a part of his universal church. But following this declaration of how Jesus will build his church, Jesus says to Peter in verse 19, this somewhat cryptic statement, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is this all about? It's all this business of binding and loosing and keys and all that sort of thing. Is he literally handing Peter uh, some keys on a ring that go to the pearly gates in heaven so that one day Peter will stand there and welcome every person who is a follower of Jesus into heaven, which is this is kind of where uh, that, that whole idea of Peter sitting at the pearly gates, you know, you having to uh, checking to see if your name is in the Lamb's book of life or whatever. That's kind of where this comes from. Uh, that's not really a very biblical image. Let me just say, by the way, the keys are not those kinds of keys. Keys, rather, the keys to the kingdom of heaven are a symbol of authority. The picture that's created here is one of the kingdom of heaven as a city, a city that is entered into through city gates, the key to which is placed in the possession of Peter. There's one way into the city, the city's through a gate, that gate is locked and guarded, beginning here with Peter. Peter, in receiving the keys to the kingdom, here has authority to prohibit people from or to permit people to enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds like a lot of authority to give to one person. How does Peter do this? And how is it possible that he could possibly do this without, without perverting what the kingdom is or, or lording this authority over others? Well, the way that Peter exercises the keys may give us some answers to those questions. 
Peter exercises the keys to the kingdom, not by telling people, you're in, you're out. No, Peter exercises the keys by preaching the gospel, by preaching that the only way to salvation is through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. We see Peter exercise the keys, if we could put it this way, for the first time in Acts chapter 2. We won't go there this morning, but you may want to later this week. There on the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up in Jerusalem in front of an innumerably large crowd and proclaims from the testimony of Scripture, from the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that there is a way to salvation in Him. And on hearing this declaration that Jesus is the Christ, those who are listening look to Peter and they say, and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We've heard this message. Now what do we do? Peter says, you repent from your sin and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. The way to the kingdom is through repentance of faith, or repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, says Peter. But the message that Peter preaches, the way he exercises the, kingdom, the, the keys of the kingdom, is really no different from the message that Jesus preached. If we were to go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew gives us a one-sentence synopsis of most of Jesus' earthly preaching. Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus' one-sentence sermon is this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to come into the kingdom? Repent from your sin, right? Look to the Savior. And this same invitation, interestingly enough, The same invitation to enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus as the Christ was exercised not only by Peter, but by the other apostles as well. John preaches this gospel. James preaches this gospel. Jude preaches this gospel. Barnabas and Silas, missionary partners to Paul, preached this gospel. Paul proclaimed this gospel as well. We see lots of people and even collective churches throughout the course of the New Testament seemingly exercising these these keys to the kingdom. The same invitation to enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus was exercised by the apostles, by Peter, by missionaries, even by local churches. And in this way, we find that the authority that Jesus gave Peter was transferred to all believers as they came to faith in Jesus and gathered in his name. So these keys that permit or prohibit people from the kingdom of heaven, tied to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, give the church authority, give the assembly of the church authority to confirm the what, the content of the gospel. Peter exercises the keys by saying, this is the way to salvation. The church exercises the keys by saying, this is the way to salvation. Local churches have been given authority by Jesus to say, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a sinless life and died for sinners and was raised again. And if you place your faith and hope in him, you will be saved. The church has authority to say that. The church has authority to say this other thing that is different from or a perversion of the true gospel is not the gospel. The church has authority to say this is the way to eternal life. This thing is a lie from hell. I'm sorry, I'm not pointing at you people and I'm not trying to... (laughs) Please forgive me if you thought I was drawing lines in the worship center. Sometimes when you talk with your hands a lot, you realize you might be saying things that you don't mean to be saying. That was one of them. But the church has authority to be very clear about the gospel message and to say clearly what the gospel message is. Now, that doesn't mean that we have authority to change the gospel message. 
It doesn't mean we have authority to make the gospel something other than what Christ and the apostles and God's word say that it is. But we have the authority to say clearly and loudly and to confirm to the world what the gospel is. Now, I said before that that authority to confirm the gospel message has been passed on to the church, from Peter to the church. And we know that this happens, that the authority to confirm the what of the gospel belongs to the church because Paul says so in one of his letters. Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, which was actually a number of churches in a regional area, he says this in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. You'll see these verses on the screen behind me. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Hear what he says in verse 8. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul is using extremely strong language here. Let him be accursed, almost literally to hell with such a one. As we have said before, Paul says, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Hear the deep passion and and desire to protect the integrity of the gospel that Paul has that he delivered to the church in Galatia that he wants them to protect as well. Paul says, even if I, who preached to you the gospel the first time, even if an angel should come to you from the heavenly realm to proclaim to you a way of salvation other than through Jesus Christ and faith in him, let him, let me be accursed. Consider a moment. Who does Paul say in all these verses, who does Paul say has authority to condemn such false teachers? Not pastors not deacons, but the assembled body of true confessors that Jesus is the Christ. Paul gives authority to the church at Galatia to announce a curse on those who preach a false gospel. Friends, as members of this local church, those of you who are covenanted members of First Baptist West Albuquerque, We have been given authority to confirm what is the saving message of the gospel. And not just our church, but every local church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ as we do, have been given authority to confirm what is the saving message of the gospel. And this we've done together formally as a church. We've exercised the keys, if you will, formally by adopting a statement of faith. And in that statement of faith is a clear description of the gospel. As members of this church, we've covenanted together under that statement of faith that's in our Constitution and bylaws, govern our our doctrine and teaching. But because the members of the church hold this authority, the assembly together holds this authority, you who are members of First Baptist West Albuquerque need to be adequately equipped to exercise it. It may be a corporately held, a collectively held authority, but every individual needs to be ready to exercise it. God forbid a scenario in which there is a, a pastor who 
takes a church, who leads a church astray, teaches a church a false gospel. And in the church, no one is really very clear on what the true gospel is. And so this false gospel comes from this pastor's mouth, sways the hearts of the church. There is no correction. And now all of a sudden, you have an apostate church. You have a, 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 a cult forming or a sect of Christianity that is not truly Christian because no one in the church knew the gospel and could correct the pastor. God forbid that ever be the case. Because the authority to confirm the what of the gospel is a collective authority. It's an authority that resides with the assembly. All of the members of the assembly need to be ready to exercise that authority individually and together. So here's an action point for you this week, members. Some homework from the pulpit. Take and write down this week. Type it, handwrite it, whatever works for you. Write down in a one-page summary what is the gospel. What are the facts of the gospel? What are the truths of the gospel that are always the same and never change whether you ever lived or didn't? The facts of who God is, who has been affected by sin, why do we need redemption, where and how is that rescue from sin found? Here's the truth, friends. You cannot confirm, and I include myself in this too, we cannot confirm what we do not know. We can't say this is true if we don't know if it is or not. And the best way to know that you know something is to make yourself able to communicate it, to teach it to somebody else. So write out the gospel this week. This is your homework. And then share it with somebody else. You can email it to me. Uh, Read it to your husband or your wife, uh, children, students, as you write out what the gospel is. Ask your parents to look it over. And to maybe give you some, some pointers, maybe bring some clarity to bear there. But let's all work together to be crystal clear on what the gospel is. Because Christ has given us authority to confirm it. So let's all make sure that we can. Jesus has given the authority, given the congregation authority to confirm the what of the gospel. But he's also given authority to the congregation to affirm the who of the gospel. So turn in your Bibles, just one page over to Matthew chapter 18. And in verses 15 through 20, we read this from Jesus. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The congregation has authority to affirm the who of the gospel. In this passage of Matthew's telling of the life of Jesus, his recollection of Jesus' life and teaching, we find laid out for us the pattern for what we often call redemptive church discipline. When someone who confesses Jesus as Lord and Christ begins to live in ways that are contrary to that confession, returning to old patterns of sin that were once repented of, there is a Christ-ordained way of confronting that person, of calling them back to repentance. First, privately, brother to brother. 
then slightly more broadly with two or three other witnesses to that same behavior. But if the brother or the sister who is sinning will not repent, the final court of appeal is not a group of pastors. It's not a board of deacons. It's not a small group Bible study, but the church. It's the assembly of believers. I said Jesus uses that word church only two times in all of the Gospels. This is the second one in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. So just as you did in Matthew chapter 16, take your pencil or your pen and circle that word church in verse 17. It's important. It's significant. And this is the second time that Jesus also uses another phrase in all of the scriptures and only the second time he uses this. Back in 16, Matthew 16, Jesus gave to Peter the keys to the kingdom. He said, whatever you bind in heaven, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So flip back to chapter 16 and underline that phrase in verse 19. And then return to Matthew chapter 18. And look again, if the one refuses to listen to, to the group of two or three, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, let him be to his Gentile and tax collector. Verse 18, and get ready to underline this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In Matthew's gospel, the word church and the phrase about binding and loosing only appear in these two passages. You can search all the rest of Matthew's gospel, all of the other gospels, the word church and this phraseology about binding and loosing don't appear anywhere else but these two places and almost in parallel fashion. Do you suppose Jesus meant for his listeners and for us to pick up on a pattern here? I think so. The pattern I believe that Jesus intends for his disciples and for us to see is that the church, is that, excuse me, that just as Peter and the church of confessing and baptized followers of Jesus after him, just as Peter and after him the church have authority to confirm the gospel message, the church altogether also has authority to affirm who are gospel people. Gospel people are those who confess Jesus as Lord and Christ and who continue in, repent, in the repentance that they had when they first believed. But when repentance turns back to willful sinfulness in the life of a confessing Christian, the Christian has broken faith with their confession. Now, individually as Christians, we see from Matthew chapter 18 that we have authority and responsibility to correct our brothers and our sisters who defy their confession by willfully sinning. Let me say the same thing a different way. Brothers and sisters, your fellow church members have authority and responsibility to correct your behavior, to confront you with unrepentant sinfulness in your life. But we as individuals, even as small groups of people, are not the final arbiters of that person's confession. We're not the last person who gets to say, yes, you really are a Christian, or we really have doubts about your profession of faith. Rather, it's the whole of the local church that is gathered together that renders judgment. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to the one or to the two or three, tell it to the assembly, to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, to the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Let him be to you as an unbeliever, which is to say, not that you kick him out of your midst, but that you proclaim the gospel to him and call him to faith and repentance just as ardently as you would someone who is not a believer. But that final court of appeal, if you will, the final place of affirming or disaffirming that a person is living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven lies with the church, with the assembly. 
Now, I hope you remember, as we've said multiple times when discussing the matter of church discipline, that the point of confronting an, uh, the unrepentant sin of other fellow brothers and sisters, other Christians, is for the purpose of them repenting. It's for the, the purpose of them coming back to the faith they once professed. It's never for the purpose of lording your own holiness over others. It's neither to demonstrate our purity over the sin of another person. No, in every case, it is always for the redeeming purpose of bringing one, uh, bringing one another closer to Jesus, encouraging our mutual sanctification, and affirming our membership in the kingdom of heaven. Now, our affirmation of gospel people does not take place only in this negative sense of church discipline, of confronting a sinful person. It actually happens, uh, should happen rather more frequently in two positive ways. And the way that we positively affirm who is a gospel person, as Jesus has given us authority to do as a church, is through practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are two positive and visible means by which we affirm the faith that is professed by those who gather together. On the one hand, baptism is the visible entry point into the church. In baptism, one is taking their own faith in Christ and making it public to others who believe the same. It is not to say that you are saved through baptism, that through baptism your sins are forgiven. That comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But baptism is the visible entry point through which we enter the church. Just like Mason said last week in his statement of faith before we baptized him. He said, I want to be baptized because God saved me and I want to make that public. I want others to know. I want others to keep me accountable to the faith in Jesus that I have. Mason, I'm putting words in your mouth, buddy, but I think that's exactly what you meant. So this is why when we baptize here in our church, we ask our, I ask our members to stand together. And it's not just to give moral support to an individual decision. It is that we all stand together in affirmation of the decision that one is making. We all stand together so as to say, we believe the same as you. Yes, Jesus is Lord. We affirm your confession. Yes, he is Christ. We welcome you into the kingdom. We welcome you into our body as a fellow disciple of Jesus. We want to help you grow. We want you to help us grow. And we want all of us to work together to affirm and confirm what is the gospel and who is a part of it. This is why Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that those who wish to receive salvation must repent of sin and be baptized. Not because baptism is necessary for salvation, repentance and faith are, but because baptism is the visible sign of that inward faith. It's taken an inward conviction about who Jesus is, an inward personal confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and standing with other brothers and sisters who have done the same to say, we're all in this together. The one who says, Jesus is Lord and Christ, but baptism isn't for me has missed the importance and the very critical way that baptism affirms their faith. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you don't want to be baptized, you have no desire to do so, hear me when I say that you are missing out on, on a critical piece of affirmation of your faith. To stand with other brothers and sisters who also have said the same thing. To, to be in it with other people. So we affirm in a positive way who is a gospel person through baptism. But we also affirm in a positive way who is a gospel person through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, different from baptism, is meant by Christ, who instituted it the night before he was betrayed, meant by Christ to be far more than just a special service that the church engages in once every three months that involves some sort of mystical introspection and personal appreciation of Christ's death. 
When Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, and as Paul affirms it for the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it is a communal meal. He gives it to his disciples together. Paul speaks to the church at Corinth about how they are to take the Lord's Supper. It is meant to be done as a whole church remembrance of Christ's death for sins. So much so, in fact, that Paul rebukes the Corinthian Christians for taking the Lord's Supper in groups within the church without recognition of one another. It seems that there were some who were wealthy and well-to-do who would meet together and, 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 and they would fellowship together. And then maybe a little bit later on, some poorer people who had to work all day came to the meeting a little bit later. But the people who were are the, the rich, more well-to-do people who didn't have to work all day had already kind of taken the Lord's Supper. So when the rest of the church come, they've already missed out on it. And Paul rebukes the church for saying for, for having such division in them, especially around this means of affirming what the gospel is. So if baptism is the sign that someone has entered into new life with Christ, then the Lord's Supper, taken regularly among the life and the body of the local church, the Lord's Supper is a reaffirmation of that faith by the members of a congregation when they take it all together. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together. We are reaffirming what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and who has believed it. Have you ever noticed when I do what's called fencing the table, I often say this is a meal for Christians, right? Because only Christians have professed that Jesus is Christ. So only Christians are meant to take this meal. And so if someone is, has previously confessed Jesus as the Christ, but is living in a way that disaffirms their faith, they're living in unrepentant sin, it would seem natural and logical to keep that person from reaffirming a faith that they're not living in light of by taking the Lord's Supper. That's what's meant by the word excommunication, which is often the, the logical end of uh, church discipline. Not to kick someone out of the church, but to prevent someone from reaffirming a statement of faith that they are not living as though it is true, you see? Jesus gives the church authority to affirm who is a gospel person, who has confessed the true confession that Jesus is Christ, Son of the living God. And we affirm it through baptism. We affirm one another through the Lord's Supper. We affirm gospel people by calling one another accountable, calling one another to walk in holiness following Jesus. So here's the takeaway. As members of this local church, We have been given authority to do this thing, to affirm who is a gospel person. This is a reality. Members of First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, Jesus has given you this authority. Holding fast to the standard of truth, the exclusive way to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we also, we as a church, we welcome, we affirm, we remind, we call to repentance those whose confession that Jesus is Lord and Christ we have received and encouraged. The fact of the matter, members of this church, is that we can only do this if we are committed to knowing and being known by each other. We can only really substantively, that's not even the right word. We can only do this in a very real way if we know each other and are known by one another. The truth is you cannot confirm the confession of a person you have not met. We cannot affirm the confession of people whose lives that we have not observed. In the same way, we cannot in good faith confront the unrepentance of those whom we have not bothered to care for prior to their unrepentance. This authority to affirm gospel people 
carries with it the deep responsibility of actually caring about the spiritual state and growth of other members of your church. We can't carry out this authority and responsibility unless we actually care and care to know about the spiritual state and spiritual growth of other members. So I gave you an action point for the first uh, aspect of authority that the church has given. Write out the gospel in a one-page summary, and I look forward to receiving some of your summaries and hearing about how those conversations are going this week. Here's an action point for this one. It's a lot harder than just writing down a one-page summary. Because you've been given authority to affirm who a gospel person is, church at First Baptist West Albuquerque, you need to make it a point to know and be known by other members of this church. Established members, members who've been here a while, it means... Reaching out to new members to involve your life with theirs. New members, it means reaching out to established members to get to know them. It means having people in our homes, having fellow members in our homes so they can see and observe how we treat our wives and our children. Interacting together in public to observe even how we interact with non-believers and other believers out in the world. We cannot affirm that someone has really, truly confessed that Jesus is Christ and call one another to maturity and obedience in Jesus if we don't bother to know one another. So if you're a member of First West, I encourage you, make it a point to know and be known by other members of this church. That is how we will, we will faithfully execute the authority and responsibility that Christ has given to affirm gospel people. Jesus has given his church authority to do these two things, to affirm what the gospel is and who is a gospel person. And this may be the first time that you've ever heard a sermon quite like this or about these things. And you may have several questions, maybe even some objectives or uh, objections, excuse me, to what I've said this morning. And I'd like to try to address at least three that I have anticipated. First response to all that we've seen this morning. Pastor, I don't want this authority. That's too much for me. I don't want it. I don't want to be responsible to do these things. If that is you this morning, friend, I don't have very good news for you. Because you may not want this authority, you may not want this responsibility, but Christ says that as a member of His church, you have it. And so our preferences for how we would live among other Christians, how we would be a church, what we would do, does not matter in the light of Christ's all-encompassing authority as sovereign king and head of his church. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Christ has said, you have this authority. And if Christ has given it, he has also given you responsibility to execute it. So I would be doing you a disservice if I did not inform you that you have this authority and that you must execute it. You must carry it out. You are responsible to Christ with what you do about the what of the gospel and the who of the gospel as a church. But perhaps your response is a little bit different. Perhaps you're thinking, oh, this is all fine and well and good, but this is the kind of stuff that's for pastors and deacons and the super Christians who, you know, want to go to seminary and, and do that sort of thing. That's just not me. I'm not that kind of person. Well, it is true that pastors have specific authority and responsibility to the churches that they lead. And we'll look at those responsibilities and that authority that God gives to pastors over the next couple of weeks. But Christ gives this authority to confirm the what of the gospel and affirm the who of the gospel. He gives this authority to the assembly. Biblically speaking, any church, any assembly, any congregation that gives up their authority to do this to pastors alone or, or to a deacon body to deal with, that congregation has been disobedient to Christ. 
Christ gives that authority to the assembly of Christians. And any assembly of Christians that said, nope, that's for the pastor, they are those who have, they have bucked responsibility that Christ has given them. Likewise, any team of pastors or any group of deacons that would seek to keep the congregation from exercising this authority so as to say, no, 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 church, you're not big enough for this. You can't handle this. Let the experts deal with it. Any group of pastors or deacons that might try to do this to a congregation is at best preventing the church from maturing in Christ and at worst trying to take away duly delegated authority to the church for themselves. So for the one who says this kind of stuff is for pastors, deacons, super Christians, that's not me. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, it is you. And it's good to learn these things. It's good to know these things about how God organizes his church. Now, perhaps you're asking or thinking a third question. You're thinking, Pastor, I I remember several weeks ago because I listened to all your sermons and I remember them very well. Take detailed notes. That several weeks ago, you preached a sermon in that Baptist Distinctives series about the autonomy of the local church. And in that sermon, Pastor, you said that churches have authority to do other things, that churches have authority to call their own pastors, to approve ministry budgets. You said that churches have authority to buy and sell property and determine philosophy of ministry and and ministry programs that they'll carry out. Didn't you say that too, Pastor? The answer is yes, and thank you for listening in such a detailed manner. Yes, it is true. Churches do have, local churches do have authority to do these things, at least in the Baptist tradition, they do. They do have authority to carry out their own business, call their own pastors, so on and so on. But dear friends, none of these expressions of authority and responsibility for the local church come even close to having the eternal impact, the eternal effect. None of them come even near to the internal, eternal importance of stating clearly, this is the way to salvation and this is a gospel person. Nothing comes nearly close to the eternal importance of saying what is the way to Restoration and reconciliation with God and visibly discerning who is on the narrow path of repentance, faith in Jesus, path of self-denial for the purpose of making much of Jesus. Yes, we do have authority to call our own pastors, to approve ministry budgets, to buy and sell property, determine philosophy of ministry. But pastors come and go. They live and die. Ministry budgets change according to the financial needs of a, of a, uh, and, and abilities of a church year to year. Property comes, property goes. In the end, it's all going to be burnt up and made new in the glory of Christ anyway. Philosophy of ministry, come and go. Ministry programs will be in vogue one day and out of vogue the next. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will never, ever, ever change. And who is a gospel person? The the one that has trusted Jesus Christ is eternally secure by faith in him. So let us, with the authority that Christ has given to us to confirm the gospel message and affirm gospel people, know that these are the most important things we can do with the authority that God has given to us as a church. Not to me as a pastor. Not to me and Pastor Danny together. Not to a group of deacons. But to all of us. See the great responsibility, the great thing with which Christ has entrusted his people to say clearly how to be right with God and to show visibly who has been made right with him. I leave you this final takeaway. Because we are a church 
that has been given this corporate authority by Christ. We all as members, young and old, men and women, mature in Christ, those who are new to the faith, we all must put ourselves in the best position possible to faithfully exercise this authority. If Christ has given it and he's going to hold us responsible to it, we need to make sure that we're ready to exercise it. We need to engage our minds to know for certain, to know with clarity what the gospel is and not to merely assume that, oh, my pastors will answer that for me, which is why I'm so very looking forward to seeing your gospel summaries come into my email this week. We need to engage our hearts to care about the spiritual state of our brothers and sisters and not rely upon paid professionals to do all the work of making sure other members are walking faithfully with Christ. We've all, as the assembly, been given authority to confirm the gospel message and to affirm gospel people as a church. And as one of your pastors, I would be doing you and Christ whom we serve a grave disservice by not reminding you that you have this authority and by not equipping you to the best of my ability in Christ to carry out these responsibilities in a way that pleases Him. Christ has given this to you. I do well to help you exercise this authority well. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, that the church of the living God, the people of Jesus Christ, are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are made to lift up the truth of Christ for all to see. As a church... We are to do this. So let us then, brothers and sisters, stand tall and hold high the person of Christ and the truth of the gospel by being clear about that truth and by being clear about those who have professed allegiance to Jesus and are living in integrity with that profession. Congregation, that is the great authority by Jesus that you have been given. Let us seek to exercise it responsibly and in a way that pleases Him. Let's pray together.